And we open our Bibles again to the 14th chapter of Matthew's Gospel, and we'll read verses 22 through 33. Matthew 14, beginning at verse 22. Let us bow before the Lord before reading. Almighty God and our Savior, we ask in the name of the Lord Jesus, the only mediator between God and man, that the Holy Spirit will illumine the page of Scripture, open our hearts to receive what is here. There are those in our midst who are lost and undone, undoubtedly. Will you draw them to yourself, draw them to the side of a bleeding Savior, and help us, Heavenly Father, who have been drawn and called and regenerated, who have believed in Christ because you have granted that great gift of faith, that our faith may become stronger, that we may deepen in our desire to walk faithfully, and that we would find greater enablement week by week and day by day as we apply the Word of God to our lives. Thank you, Heavenly Father, that the great shepherd of the sheep, the Lord Jesus, has given the privilege to under-shepherds to proclaim the unsearchable riches of Christ. And Father, may those riches now be proclaimed, and may we all receive them by faith and with great joy, for we ask it in the name of Jesus our Lord. Amen. Matthew's Gospel, chapter 14, beginning with verse 22. This is the Word of God. Immediately he made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. And after he had dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone. But the boat by this time was a long way from the land, beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them. And in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. When the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified, and he said, It is a ghost, and they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, Take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. And Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. He said, Come. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. When he saw the wind, he was afraid, and beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying, O you of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased. And those in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. Last week, we were privileged together to see that Christ feeds his people in the wilderness. Today, as we come to this text, we find that Christ is present with his people in the storm. And the first thing we want to see, this is our first point, is the church in danger. Now, the disciples in this passage are left alone by Jesus. He dismisses the crowd. He goes up onto the mountaintop to pray. He tells them to go ahead of him, and there they are in the boat on the water. And so the disciples are not only alone, but the disciples are alone on a raging sea. Now, we've seen the sea. Some of you had some time this summer by the water, and perhaps it was placid. Maybe there was a little wind, and the waves looked like little puppy dog's tails. 
But you've also been at the sea undoubtedly when you've had to leave because the power of the wind against the waves was so great and the waves seemed to be whips that would draw you in. So here are the disciples on the sea in the midst of a great storm. Now they are the church in microcosm. That's why there are 12 of them corresponding, of course, to the tribes of Israel. Jesus is absent. They are alone And they are in danger. Now, can there be any doubt that the early church reading this passage would draw parallels to their own situation? That Jesus has gone, he has ascended on high, he's not left them alone, he's given the Holy Spirit, but nonetheless, in the midst of their troubles, they sometimes feel alone and they sense the danger that the church is in with persecution and all of the various troubles that face the early church. If the early church could not fail to apply this text to themselves, then certainly we who are believers in Jesus need to apply this text to our lives as well. The disciples are alone on a raging sea, and the disciples' need and danger teaches you and me. They were not on the sea by accident, were they? They were on the sea, and they were in this storm because they were obedient to Jesus' command. You know, the church will know trouble in obedience to Jesus' command. The church here is in trouble in obedience to Jesus' command as the church finds herself on this raging sea. As we live holy lives in Christ Jesus, this world is not going to like it and the church will find herself in trouble with her neighbors. As we preach the gospel of Jesus Christ and the world is is opposed to that gospel, we will find ourselves in trouble there as well. We need to apply these truths to the circumstances in which we find ourselves when we are in trouble because of our obedience to the Lord Jesus Christ. The church will know trouble in obedience to Jesus' command. Does God send trouble? Of course he does. And I am appalled at the number of ministers who answer that question, no. They seem to be afraid to say that anything that seems to us to be bad that comes into our lives comes from his fatherly hand. But that is precisely what the Bible teaches. Does God send trouble? Was he in control of the raging sea? Yes. Did Jesus send them there? Yes. Does God send trouble? Yes. Who of us can read the narrative of Joseph in the book of Genesis coming to the 50th chapter when he says to his brothers, you intended it for evil, but God intended it for good without understanding that God sends trouble? Who of us can read about the cross of Jesus Christ and know That wicked men, fully responsible for what they did, nonetheless the cross predestined by God, that God sends trouble. Of course he does. Our salvation depends upon his sovereign control of all of these wonderful and hard matters that are so difficult for us to perceive and to understand. Of course God sends trouble. Why did Christ send them on the sea? He sent them on the sea, as we shall see, because he wanted them to see who he is. And he wanted them to understand their weakness, and he wanted them to grasp that they are totally dependent upon him. Why does God send trouble to you and me? To glorify his name. So that we might have a greater sense and understanding of who he is. So that we might acknowledge our complete and utter weakness and depend completely upon his strength. The church in this passage is in danger. Second thing we see is divine protection. Let's read again verses 25 to 27. And in the fourth 
watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, It is a ghost. And they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, Take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. Now they're there, the fourth watch of the night. This is a Roman calculation of time, somewhere between 3 a.m. and 6 a.m. And as we see divine protection unfolding in these verses, the first thing we see is Jesus' dominion. Jesus' dominion. He walks on the sea. He has absolute dominion over all created things. He created the sea. He can walk on the sea. All things serve him. All things serve his ends and his purpose. The wind and the waves are his servants. Psalm 93, 4, the Lord on high is mightier than the voice of many waters. But as we see Jesus' dominion walking on the water, we also see in this passage the disciples' fear. They see Jesus coming. They don't think it's Jesus. They think it's a ghost, actually literally a phantasm. It was in Hebrew thought a superstition that there were various spirits that would lurk around seas and around water, and undoubtedly that's what they thought they were seeing. It was an irrational fear. Based on superstition, you know, every time fear has gripped my heart and my spiritual walk in Christ, looking back on it, I can say that fear was an irrational fear. There was no reason for it. Didn't my covenant God promise he would love me? Didn't he promise he would redeem me? Didn't he promise he would keep me? Didn't he promise he would save me? Didn't he promise he would never leave nor forsake me? Every time my heart has been gripped by fear, that fear has been an irrational fear. Fear. He is sovereign to save, sovereign to keep, sovereign to provide. We confess these things, and yet we find ourselves fearful, just as do the disciples now on the boat. But now we see the divine protection. When in verse 27 we read, But immediately Jesus spoke to them, Take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. Ego, eimi, me, fabesta. Ego, eimi can mean, as it is translated here, it is I. It is I. Fear not. Or it can mean, as we see it multiple times in John's gospel without any doubt, that it means I am. I am. Do not fear. Now, as we think about Old Testament imagery, remember Matthew is constantly concerned with fulfillment. As we think of Old Testament imagery, think of these verses. Job, verse 8, chapter 9 who alone stretches out the heavens and trample the waves of the sea. The 77th Psalm, do you remember that? When the waters saw you, O God, when the waters saw you, they were afraid. Indeed, the deep trembled, the clouds poured out water, the skies gave forth thunder, your arrows flashed on every side. The crash of your thunder was in the whirlwind, your lightnings lighted up the world, the earth trembled and shook. Your way was through the sea, your path through the great waters, yet your footprints were unseen. By the way, that's the passage from which that great hymn is derived. God moves in a mysterious way his wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps in the sea and rides upon the storm. Isaiah chapter 43, verse 16, Thus says the Lord who makes the way in the sea a path in the mighty waters. And Pastor MacDonald read to us from Isaiah 43, when you pass through the waters, I will be with you, and through the rivers they shall not overwhelm you. We find constantly 
these references in the Old Testament to Jehovah walking on the water, walking over the water, sovereign over the water, near the sea, in complete control of his creation. And here we see Jesus coming to his disciples, walking on water, and he says, Ego me, do not fear. I have no doubt that Jesus is saying to them, not simply, it is I. He is saying to them, I am. And he is linking himself, his character, and his name with that great name of God given to Moses out of the burning bush in Exodus chapter 3 when God said, I am that I am. I am the God of whom you read in the Old Testament who walks upon the sea. I am the God of the Old Testament who comes to his people and rescues them from the danger of the waves. I am. Do not fear. And I think D.A. Carson is certainly right when he says, once again, we find Jesus revealing himself in a veiled way that will prove especially rich to Christians after his resurrection. And that's you and me. Jesus is I am. Not only then and there, but now for you today. He is the covenant God of his people. He is self-sufficient. He is altogether sovereign. And the upshot of this should be in our lives that we confess and know him to be the same for us today as he was then. And so, since he is, I am, do not be afraid. And I know things in your lives and in mine as well of which we would be afraid, but do not be afraid. Do you mean, Pastor, do you mean that Matthew really expects me to believe that Jesus walked on water? Yes, of course. This is what the Bible says. Matthew expects you to believe that Jesus walked on water, but that's the least of it. Matthew not only expects you to believe that Jesus walked on water, Matthew expects you to believe that Jesus is Jehovah in the flesh who came to save and to redeem his people from their sins. God with us who went to a cross and shed his blood so that in his almighty power you might be saved. That's what Matthew wants you to see. That's what Matthew is laboring chapter after chapter To help you to understand. Third thing we see in this passage is the nature of faith. The nature of faith. Jesus then comes. He says, Ego me, I am, do not fear. He's recognized by Peter. And Peter says in verse 28, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. What does Jesus say? Come. And so he comes. A bold request, really. But Jesus says, come, I'm the object of faith. There's only one object of saving faith. The waters are deep, but if Jesus says, come, why do you fear? Come. But we also see a forgetful heart in verse 30. When he saw the wind, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. What happened to Peter? He forgot who Jesus is. He drew no connection immediately with I am. He had forgotten how he had cast out demons. He was not thinking in the midst of the the waves that were coming over his head. He was not thinking about how he had healed the sick. He was not thinking of his sovereignty and walking on the water. He was forgetting who Jesus is. He has not forgotten Jesus totally. He cries out to him for salvation, but he has forgotten who he is. 
He forgot the proofs of his power and the proofs of his authority. He focused, listen, Peter focuses on second causes. He focuses on wind. He focuses on waves rather than on the God who is in control of wind and waves, who has created the water, who has created the sea. He's focused just as you and I do on the things that we see and the things that we sense. We focus on second causes. J.C. Ryle says beautifully, he considered not that the same Savior who had enabled him to walk one step must be able to hold him up forever. He did not reflect that he was nearer to Christ when once on the water than when he first left the ship. Fear took away his memory. Alarm confused his reason. And that's us, isn't it? That in the midst of our trouble, often fear takes away our memory. We forgot who he was. We, we forget who he is. We forget what he has done for his people through history. We forget what he has done for us. And alarm at second causes confuses our reason so that we forget that he is the sovereign Lord of all. A bold request, a forgetful heart, but also a faithful Savior, people of God. For in verse 31, Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying, Oh, you of little faith, why do you doubt? You see his mercy? He didn't say, Oh, Peter, where's your faith? You're not believing. I'm going to let you sink. He didn't do that. He stretches out his almighty hand and he saves Peter. He is gentle. He does not leave him to drown in the waves of unbelief. What love and pity the Lord has for us as people when we are so doubting and so fearful and so unbelieving, yet he loves us, he is gentle, and he saves us, doesn't he? What of God's people here can say, oh, there was a time when he didn't do that for me? Yes, he has, he does, he will. What love and pity the Lord has, his mercy never fails. I think it's utterly amazing when I consider my faithlessness to see his faithfulness. You know, the autobiography of William Huntington, 18th century Calvinist minister, of whom some of you may have heard, has a very, very interesting thing in it. He said when he was converted, that he felt pity for God. Now, that's a very arresting and an alarming way of putting it. He felt pity for God. What did William Huntington mean? Huntington meant by that that his heart was filled with grief that such a good God who had given him his word, who had sent his son to the cross, who had provided for him, that such a good God he had ignored and had hated and had despised and from whom he had fled until God saved him. What is William Huntington noting? He is noting God's faithfulness and mercy despite our unfaithfulness and despite our merciless hearts. But also we have a penetrating question when in verse 31 Jesus says, Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? Now the word doubt that's used here in this verse, in verse 31, is used only twice in the New Testament, both times in Matthew, and one of the times is here. It's from the word distadzo. And dis in Greek means twice. The word is telling us, the very word itself is telling us that Peter was pulled in two different ways. He is pulled between what he knows about Jesus and what he sees as he is attempting to walk on the water and forgets who Jesus is. Those two things are happening. There is conflict between what he knows and what he senses. We also sing in that great hymn, God Moves in a Mysterious Way, the words, Judge not the Lord by feeble sense. 
And yet, what do we do? We judge the Lord by feeble sense. We judge the Lord by what we see, what we fear, what we feel, what we can figure out. We judge the Lord by feeble sense. Don't. Remember the scripture? Psalm eighteen sixteen. He sent from on high. He took me. He drew me out of many waters. And such verses could readily be multiplied. That's what Jesus is doing here to his fearful, unbelieving servant. You know, D.A. Carson, as I was reading various things on this text, made a passing remark that I thought was extremely important. Carson says, Doubts and fears quickly disappear before a strict inquiry into their cause. Doubts and fears quickly disappear before a strict inquiry into their cause. So you look at the fear and you say, Why am I fearful? I'm fearful because I'm forgetting who Jesus is. I'm fearful because of the circumstance. I am fearful because I'm not walking by faith. I'm not living in accord with the promise. And you know, people of God, there's only one way. There is only one way for your faith to grow stronger so that the next time you walk more faithfully and the next time more faithfully and the next time more faithfully, there's only one way for your faith to grow stronger and that is to go through the waters. Why does God take you through the deep waters? One reason is so that you will grow stronger in your faith and will understand who he is. That is God's design in your life and mine. But meanwhile, take heart from the fact that it's not the strength of your faith that saves you, but the strength of the Savior who saves you. It's not the strength of your faith that saves you. It's the strength of the blood of Christ that grips you, that saves you. But nonetheless, don't you want to grow in your faith and be stronger in your faith and walk faithfully in the midst of the storm? Well, we see fifthly, fourthly in this passage, divine power. Divine power. For Jesus comes and what happens to the sea? It ceased toiling. For we read in verse 32, and when they got into the boat, the wind ceased. Literally, it ceased to toil. These miracles that we read in Matthew's gospel are eschatological signs. They have eschatological sign value. If, if we ask the question, for example, why are the dead not raised today? But Jesus raised the dead. The reason for that is simple. The signs of Jesus, the healings, The raisings of the dead, the walking on water, had a specific purpose in that period of redemptive history. They were signs that the kingdom had come, that the reign of salvation had arrived. They were signs that the day would come in which there would be a resurrection of the dead. There would be new heavens and new earth. That this world that creaks under the burden of the fall will one day be set right when Jesus comes again. And so that's what we see here. The winds cease, the sea becomes calm because Jesus' eschatological sign walking on the water points to the day when all will be right. A.T. Robertson said so lovely, the wind grew weary or tired, exhausting itself in the presence of its master. So we see the divine power and we see the disciples worshiping the Lord who displayed this power in verse 33. And those in the boat worshiped him saying, truly you are the son 
of God. Now, if you're thinking about Matthew, you will remember that they have been, these disciples have been on the sea before. All the way back there in chapter 8, do you remember that? When Jesus calmed the waters? And you remember how that little passage concludes. In Matthew 8, 27, after Jesus rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was great calm, in verse 27 we read, And the men marveled, saying, What sort of man is this that even winds and sea obey him? They see the calm sea, what Jesus has done, and they saw, what manner of man is this? Who is this that even the winds and the sea obey him? And now we've come to chapters 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14. They have heard in chapter 3, God say at Jesus' baptism, this is my beloved son. They've heard the demons in chapter 4 and chapter 8 confess that Jesus is the Son of God. They have heard in chapter 11 the Lord Jesus speak of his personal relation with his Father. In chapter 8 they say, what manner of man is this? When they come to chapter 14, they are now ready to say, this is the Son of God. Do you see the difference? Chapter 8, who is this? Chapter 14, they know who it is. The Son of God. I'm not suggesting they knew it as fully as they will. I'm not suggesting they know it as fully as we do with a complete canon in our hands. Not at this point. But they are beginning to see that Jesus Christ is God's own Son. And Matthew wants his readers to see and confess it as well. Have you? Do you? And so let's focus, fifthly and finally, on who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? Well, we've seen that he's the Lord of wind and waves. We have seen that he's the Lord of our faith who grants it, sustains it, grows it. We have seen in verse 33, the pinnacle of the text, that he is the Lord of all, the Son of God who should be worshipped by us all. And so I say to you unbelievers sitting here today in the midst of God's people, Have you made this confession that Jesus is the Son of God? One writer sees an echo of Old Testament language about God behind five God-like acts of Jesus in this text to which correspond Old Testament passages. First, walking on the water. Second, talking as God, I am. Thirdly, extending his hand to save. The arm of the Lord is not shortened that it cannot save. Fourthly, saving from the water And fifthly, calming the storm. Old Testament passages behind each of these divine, godlike acts of Jesus. And I was thinking this. Maybe this morning, Jesus will perform another godlike act because he is God, the Savior. And that act would be converting your heart from sin and saving you from drowning in the waves of your sin and iniquity by his own sovereign free grace. That maybe this morning, through the power of the Holy Spirit, this strange, matchless grace, God-like miracle of love will happen in your heart, and he will save you from your sin. Let me say this to you, if you're an unbeliever in Jesus, hearing this text this morning, that if you cry out, save me, he will save you. 
He has never turned a sinner away. Never. If you cry out, save me, he will save you. And when you so cry, it is because in grace he has enabled you so to do. And so if you sense and feel within your heart the desire to cry out, Lord, save me from my sin, do so. Cry out, Lord, save me from my sin, and he will do it. That's the good news to you. But now, believer, what do we do with this text? Peter's faith may have been weak, but Peter's faith was real. Peter's faith shows in calling on Jesus, doesn't it? And I could not help but think of Jonathan Edwards when I read this passage, when he said, when God is about to bestow some great blessing on his church, it is often his manner in the first place to so order things in his providence as to show his church their great need of it, and to bring them into distress for want of it, and so put them upon crying earnestly to him for it. When God so puts his people in circumstances that we are upon the storm and we see the need, we begin to learn how to cry out to God to help us and to show us grace and mercy. And if God is doing that in your heart, then that is a good thing. I mean, I would just lay my heart bare. I am almost in agony for concern over the church in our country, in our day, and in our time. And yet, as I plead to God that he would restore expository preaching and restore a spirit of prayer among the people of God and restore reverent worship and restore an earnest desire for holiness of life and on and on, I could not help but think, Isn't that precisely what he did with the disciples when they cried out? Isn't that what he does with his people? He puts us in the midst of the storm that we learn to see our need and cry out for it. And oh, how I long to see that among us. Every Christian should apply this passage to his circumstances. It was in obedience to Jesus that the disciples found themselves on the storm. The separation from his disciples might have led the church to remember its situation. Jesus ascended, a time of waiting for his return, the fourth watch of the night, hard-pressed like a ship on the sea. There's a good reason that the early church used a boat to symbolize the church. Ever seen that in early church art? The symbol of the church is a boat. And this is why. One reason that is why. But you see, the Lord of wind and waves has not left us alone. He has granted us his Holy Spirit. And he will come again and receive us to ourselves. And so the message of the text is keep your gaze on Jesus, not your circumstances, not second causes, not those things that would tempt you to fear. Let's learn together by faith to keep our gaze fixed on Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith. People of God, let us apply ourselves to every appointed means to strengthen our faith in these dark days. Why should we doubt? Why should we fear? In the words of Toplady's great hymn, From whence this fear and unbelief? Hath not the Father put to grief his spotless Son for me? And will the righteous judge of men condemn me for that debt of sin which, Lord, was charged on thee? That's the question. From whence this fear and unbelief? From where does that fear and unbelief come? People of God, don't fear. Didn't Christ die for you? Don't fear. Didn't Christ save you? Don't fear. Doesn't he promise on the value of his blood to keep you forever? Don't fear. Isn't he the Lord of the storm? 
Don't fear. Don't fear. But believe His name and trust Him for His grace. And God's people said, Amen.